Good morning, everybody. Now it's finally here. <laughs> I heard that I was going to be speaking back in December. <laughs> uh, we're going to be talking about the next part of the series. It's Galatians 5, 16, and 25. Walk in the Spirit. Paul is telling us in this passage about a conflict within Christians. A struggle between the Spirit and the flesh. I looked around and C.S. Lewis wrote a quote in his book, The Weight of Glory. He put it this way. Indeed, we consider the unblushing promise of reward and the staggering nature of rewards promised us in the gospel. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling with drink, sex, and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to play in the slums and makes mud pies because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. In verse 16, Paul starts with the description of this conflict. Slide two. Let's take a prayer, please. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, and we're talking about your spirit. I ask that you come in now and talk to our hearts and just help us to reacquaint with uh, the things you want us to know. Amen. But I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not be gratified by desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing things you want to do. Well, that seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? I mean, I first read that and I go, duh. <laughs> it seems to know that it's an instinct in us, that if we're walking by the Spirit, the flesh doesn't work well together. But that's not always how it is in Christian life, is it? Let me give you an example. Can we go to slide three and then slide four? Slide four. In 1972, I was looking forward to getting my driver's license. And uh, I went to driver's training, and I was really looking forward to that very first time by the wheel because my dad had been taking me out in the field across our street practicing driving, usually after church on Sundays, was our 1968 Bel Air. Now, the Bel Air had a 350 engine, it had a stick shift on the tree. And I would get out there and I would learn how to put the clutch in and give it just enough gas not to kill it. And, but one of the things my dad really pointed out to me is that when you come to stop that car, that clutch goes all the way to the floor. See, dad was concerned about burning out the clutch, which was a common thing in those days. If you didn't put the clutch all the way to the floor, you could stop the car, but you were still grinding on that pressure plate. So... I was getting inside and getting excited about getting in my first drive out. Now, that's a lot like what it looked like. I went to Foothill High School in Bakersfield, California. And uh, go Trojans. Um, <laughs> so I get behind the wheel and I wait for my turn. You know how they all kind of drive around and they tell you to pull over to the curb and then switch seats. And so I finally got behind the wheel. 
And as I get ready, I think, oh, you know, this is going to be such a breeze. It's going to be so easy. Once they see how well I do this, I can skip the rest of the course and they'll just mail me my license. <laughs> Two things messed that up. One, the Bel Air did not have power brakes. New invention in those days, but it's a big difference. Number two is, this was an automatic, not a stick shift. So I pull away from the curb, acceleration's going really, really good, and then I start to get a little nervous. Things felt a little different, and the, the instructor calmly said for the first time, stop at the stop sign. So I remembered what my dad had taught me, and I mashed down on both pedals. <laughs> Everybody in the car was thrown forward, and then the engine revved way up. And then the instructor, you know, not as calmly said, put your foot on the brake, take your foot off the gas. I wasn't aware of what he was talking about. <laughs> I know that seems kind of funny, but don't we as Christians do the same thing? We live our lives with one foot on the brake and one foot on the gas. <clears throat> I'm talking about that sin in your life since you've given your heart to the Lord that just can't seem to kick it. It's a secret sin for most Christians. We get really, really good at being secret, especially with this one thing. There's a part of your life that you can't resist. The temptation comes up, and over and over and over again, you fall back into it. It might be a temper that you just can't seem to get under control. And if the right thing and the right situation, the right circumstances comes up, you give in. It might be your thought life, where you allow yourself to think about things you know you shouldn't think about, but you still go there, and you go there over and over again. We may not be people walking down the road or driving down the road with the gas pedal and the brake pedal mashed at the same time, but a lot of us are driving with our emergency brakes on. You know what I mean? The car's just not as good moving as it should be. There's something wrong. What's that smell? You know? <laughs> but you still do it. And because you think it works, you think that's the way it's meant to work. Maybe I just can't get victory over this. Maybe I've tried over and over again, and there's this one weakness in me, I cannot get past this. Let's go to slide five, please. <clears throat> but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And what Paul's talking about here when he started this letter to Galatians is, is there was a group of men in that church that were constantly trying to get people to fall back under the law of Moses. They were saying that we need to follow the law. Yeah, we're Christians, but you need this. So how many of us have got to the idea that this sin that we're struggling with in our lives is something, if I just had enough willpower, I could do this. You know, you'll hear a sermon, you'll hear a song, there'll be something in your heart that, that kind of gets tingly and you say, oh yeah, I just got to do it this time. My willpower is strong enough. I can defeat this. I'm just going to live my life by the rules and that'll be good. When we came to God in that moment in our lives when we gave our heart to God, we were honest. We realized that our sin was nothing we had power over. That as hard as we tried, as much as we wanted to, we were sinners, and it wasn't good enough. 
at that moment, we realized, too, that we had a Savior, someone that took our place, someone that came and made up for our shortcomings. And he was able to take the penalty of the sins that we had committed on himself. And that was good enough. And that day that you, you gave it all to God and you raised up from that moment that you gave it all to God and you took that first deep breath of air and you realized it's God. You believed God's promise that he wasn't going to hold those mistakes against you anymore. You remember that feeling? How it just, I love the Lord so much. He's so good. But then as you go down the road, things start to collect on you again. Well, listen, if we trusted him at that moment to save us from our sins, we can trust him the rest of our lives to help us with that fleshly nature, that part of us that still is tempted to sin. And that's the truth. Slide six, please. How can I keep in step with the Spirit? That's a good question. Because a lot of us, you know, we're not sure. How does that work? You know, it's hard. When I was in college, a long time ago, (laughs) I was raised in a Christian home, and my mom and dad were really good about boundaries. They really were pretty strict about how I was raised. But I went to a Christian college, and I quickly realized that my life was my own, my choices were my own, and I started to wrestle with things that I had never come in contact with living in my folks' home. There were temptations out there as a teenage man, away from home, living in a different place. And I found myself in church on Sunday just because that's the way I'd always been raised, but on the weekdays, not quite doing what I usually did, what I should have done. And I remember sitting in church on Sunday, how I felt, you know? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? (laughs) So I came to this question, is it going to be my father's religion or is it going to be my religion? Is his faith or it's my faith? I'm going to have to take it on myself. Is it going to work in my life? Like I've seen it work in the people that, his life and the other people that introduced me to being a Christian. Slide seven. This goes to my next example. Now, some of you young people out there might not recognize what that is. (laughs) In the late 1950s, there was another high-tech revolution. It was amazing. It changed our lives forever. It was the invention of the transistor. So before that, radios were big things that were in cabinets that were in your house. And when you plugged them in and turned them on, you'd hear a hum, but it was a while before you got the music. This, and that, that actually looks like the one we had, was amazing because what you did was you put batteries in it, you didn't have to have it plugged in, and you can listen to the greatest tunes while you were washing your car, working in the garage, or whatever you were doing. Picnics and all that. And I'm going to stop and say this too. In the 60s, we had some of the best music that has ever been. (laughs) Give me Carol King over Miley Cyrus any day. (laughs) But something about this invention was kind of interesting, and I know that you guys that have had the, the great experience of having one of these things know 
that what you did was you went out there and you pulled out the antenna and you set it in some place and you tuned it in and you'd hear this hiss and finally you'd hear Three Dog Night. And then you kind of moved it a little ways back and forth until you got the station in. You know what I'm talking about? And it would play pretty good until when moved the antenna just a little bit or something else. And you kind of constantly had to be monitoring it. Also, I've got to say, too, they've come a long way with battery life. <laughs> that is the same way it is with us and the Holy Spirit. We have to tune in our signal a little bit. Now, it's talked about as a still, small voice. This voice inside of you that when you became a Christian, God put his spirit inside of you. And it's supposed to communicate to you as you go through your day. Now, a lot of this, this is the way the communication goes. You're walking away from a conversation you had, and all of a sudden, this thought comes in your head, and you say, I should not have said that. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Why did I do that? Why did I react that way? Sometimes it's an after little bump. But a lot of times, there's a, a little voice inside of you before you do something wrong or before you step off the path, too. But a lot of times, what happens is, as we become... Numb to that voice. We've got so many other things in our lives that we don't get the signal in good. We fail to tune it in. One thing I'll tell you about too with this radio is, is we had a very powerful radio station right across the street from our house. I could see those three towers of KAFY radio station. Just, I mean, look out the window. They were right there. So I didn't have any problem knowing where to tune my antenna, right? But one thing I learned is that the station doesn't adjust to me. I have to adjust to the station. And a lot of times, if you go someplace where the radio cannot receive the signal, you don't get a signal. Well, as Christians, if you're not getting a signal from God, maybe you shouldn't be in that place you're at. You know what I'm talking about? We've got to adjust and tune ourselves to God. He's sending a signal that's pretty strong if you really want to listen to it. We live in a world that's really, really hostile to living by the Spirit. The message today is to live your own life, to follow your own selfish pursuits. You, you, you. This is going counter to what God wants us to do in our lives, how he wants us to be developed. Sometimes we need to tune that station a little different. Now, this next passage is the part I dreaded when I knew I was going to speak on this passage. Slide eight, please. Because I knew that I was going to be standing up here and having to say the word orgy in front of my mother. <laughs> and there's no way I can slip over it. So I'm going to go through this list. Paul has given us a list here to show you, and it's not an exhaustive list. There's a lot more that could be added to it. But it's a list that contrasts flesh and spirit. First, he takes it on in verse 19, flesh. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissension, envy, drunkenness, orgy, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you from before. 
those who do such things will not inherit God, the kingdom of God. But the fruits of the Spirit are joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I want to take a look at these lists. You know, the Bible said early, early on, there's nothing new under the sun. And when I first heard that verse, I was in Sunday school in the 70s. And the 70s was always about new things, you know. And it, it, oh, no one's ever thought these thoughts before. Nobody's ever had this music before. Nobody's ever did this stuff before. We were new. We were innovative. Uh, that's not true. <laughs> it's the same old stuff just put in a different package, but it is the same old stuff. That list reflects an attitude that is focused on self. It reflects an attitude that is about gratifying one's self. You know, it's interesting when you have a little child and you raise him up, you don't have to teach him to be selfish. He's got that. You know what I mean? He knows what that is. I want that toy. I don't care if my sister wants it. I want it. <laughs> you have to teach him to start to think and to act and care about the others around him. And it takes a while. For some of us, it takes a long time. That list reflects on someone who's focused on himself, wants to gratify himself, wants to feed that fleshly desire. Now, that shouldn't be in Christians. Isn't that why we get called hypocrites all the time? Because we pretend that this part of ourselves is not noticed by the rest of the world, but it is. A lot of times it was reflected in how we treat each other. I looked up the word enmity. A state of feeling of being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. Hostility, animosity, antagonism, friction, bitterness, resentment, hatred. I'm against it. No matter what it is, I'm against it. This attitude that the first reaction out of your mouth is to oppose enmity. It's a state of being. Second one, strife. Anger, bitter disagreements over fundamental issues, conflicts, friction, discord, disagreement. You know, the last prayer Jesus prayed before he went to the cross was that we would be unified, that we would know unity. We haven't got there yet. And part of the reason we haven't got there yet is because we have allowed that fleshly nature to still live inside of us. Gentleness. The quality of being kind, tender, or mild-mannered. Softness of action or effect of lightness. Kindness, the quality of being friendly, generous, and considerate. Patience, the capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or strife without getting angry or upset about it. There's a big contrast in that. The fruits of the Spirit are unselfish, they put others first. They think about other people. 
They think about how other people are going to feel over their own feelings. They put others before themselves. You know, when I started studying this passage, it started to come to mind that... Slide nine, please. It's really all about relationships. This whole thing is about relationships. One is the relationship we have with God or we should have with God as a believer. And number two, the relationships that we have with others matter to God. It makes a difference. God wants to do something in us. Now, we tend to realize, I would forget to realize that sin separates us from God. It's the same thing as Adam and Eve running away from God when he came that night. When we have sin in our lives, we pull back from God. We take the batteries out of our radio. We hold away from God. You know what? That second list, if we could put up slide eight again. The second part of that list, the fruits of the Spirit, that's Jesus' personality. That's how the Spirit feels about us. Gentle, kind, patient, faithful. You're not fooling God. He knows how you're living with this in your life. You may run from him, but he doesn't run from you. He is always, 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 always pulling for you. He knows you struggle with this. He knows you fight against this. But he's not there to beat you up with a stick every time you fail. He will not quit on you. He wants you to overcome this that you're struggling with. Slide 10, please. In 1957, in February 3rd, a flight took out of LaGuardia Airfield at that time. It was an American Airlines DC-6A with about 100 passengers on board. Some were headed down to different places, but the next, plane that, next place that plane was supposed to land was Miami Airport. LaGuardia, near New York City, was in a blizzard when the plane started to take off. It headed down the runway, achieved an altitude of about 200 feet above the ground, and then it started to slowly decline. And it started losing altitude and losing altitude until it landed on Rikers Island. It didn't really land, it crashed on Rikers Island. Now, Rikers Island is an interesting place. Rikers Island is the scene of one of the biggest jails in America. In fact, this jail is bigger than most prisons. It houses the worst from New York City. Some are awaiting their trials and their sentence to state and federal prison. Some are serving their sentences at Rikers Island. But what this island holds in that prison, and it's an old prison, it was an old prison in 57, it's even an older prison now. It holds people who were living by the flesh. Whether it was drink, drugs, they were robbing people, beating their wives, murder. This prison held people that had no control over the flesh. The flesh ruled their lives. 
Well, the plane crashed. Out the windows of the prison, the warden could see that there were survivors in this fiery crash, people running on fire. He didn't have very much time to make a decision, but he made a decision. He swung open the doors of the prison and he let 50 inmates run out into the snow to help those people in that crash. Now, this was a big thing because it's a blizzard. They can get lost in that snow real easy. A lot of them didn't have time to grab their coats or their shoes, no gloves. They grabbed blankets if they could find them because they knew in 1957 the first responders weren't going to be there for a long time. So these prisoners ran out into the snow. These men that had lived by their own selfish desires that had got them into prison ran out into the snow and they grabbed the people that were still alive, that were still reeling from this horrible accident that happened to them. A lot of them were still on fire. A lot of the inmates received a lot of burns, putting the fire out by their own hands. What was interesting is, is that after everything got taken care of, the inmates, one by one, all came back to the prison. Not one tried to escape. The people from the flight that were able to survive were loaded onto ferries and uh, trucks and taken to the hospitals in New York City. The aftermath of this was that the warden was awarded the Medal of Honor in his profession for his quick thinking and decision to make that. The other thing is, is uh, all but 15 of the inmates that ran out to help these people had their sentences immediately uh, exonerator, whatever the word is. Commuted, thank you. Of the 15 that didn't have their sentences commuted, they had their sentences greatly reduced. And the reports were that the men that were these 50 men that ran out there went back with changed lives. What was the difference? What happened to these men who were living by selfish means? All of a sudden changed the way they looked and the way they focused. Well, they saw the need. They recognized the need. They weren't thinking about escaping. They weren't thinking about running away. We were thinking about helping those people over there. Their hearts were put from being selfish and self-centered, a part that led their lives to this prison, to thinking about the people they could help, the people that really, really needed them. They weren't thinking about their drug addiction. They weren't thinking about their alcoholism or their lust or their anger. Their eyes were focused on others. It made a huge difference in how they lived. It made a huge difference in the people they helped, too. There was one story on the plane. There was a man who was a great talent. He could play piano like nothing else. And he was invited to come down to Miami to do an audition with one of the most popular bands in the country at the time. His wife was a teacher. They had never flown before. Friends had encouraged them to sit in the back of the plane because they had thought that was the safest place to be. Well, it was. But he and, he and her received horrible injuries. His hands were so burned, and when the scars healed, he could never play the piano again. She became a teacher, but every year when she met her new students, she had to walk out and stop and wait for them to get over 
the image of her burned face and her burned hands and her burned skin. And after a while, she didn't let that stop her. She kept going on, and she affected a lot of children's lives. He didn't let it stop him. He went on and wrote a lot of music. Now, my point is, is that <clears throat> we all struggle with this. I mean, I, I think if we're honest in ourselves, we don't live by the fl- we don't live by the Spirit all the time. There are times when we pull back. I'd like us all to just kind of bow our heads for a second. Just where you are, just get honest with God. Some of us have become so weary in this struggle, we've almost given up. We've almost said, kind of, what's the use anymore? I'm tired, and I don't think I can ever, ever resist this temptation, this piece of sin in my life that I'm holding on to. Some of us have adopted all kinds of excuses. We've told ourselves, well, God will, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I've got a 99% score here. This 1% isn't going to matter. It does matter. Some of us have not realized that because we've been so focused on ourselves, we don't see the others in need around us. We've become numb to that. And we've lived our lives not lifting our eyes up to where God wants us to see. And we've not seen the neighbor next door that really is hurting. And we could use some kind words and we could step in. A guy at work that is struggling with some things that we have the answers to. But we get so self-focused. Or a Christian brother that has been offended and we know we can go talk to him and we can find peace with him, but we decide, ah, oh, we, we'll get to it. Whatever God's putting on your heart, I want you to know that he has not given up on you. He will never, ever, ever quit on you. Recommit yourself to walking in the Spirit. Recommit yourself to looking for a different way. God won't quit. He wants to finish that work in you. He wants to develop patience, kindness, gentleness. He wants you to look more like him. 